Welcome. Thanks for joining us today. We're so glad that you're tuning in here. And as usual, we want to say that we would love to be with you in person, and we are just as anxious as you to get back together. And in just a moment, I'll have some more information about that. I want to let you know also, though, that a team of 12 of us from the church staff, we are one church in two locations, and uh, a team of 12 of us is representative of the rest of the staff and elders We are going through a process of restructuring and kind of revisioning and making sure that we are all clear about who we are as a church. And we really want to serve you well and serve you biblically. And we have asked for some outside help from a nationwide consultant to help us do that. And so we wanted to ask for your prayer next Tuesday and Wednesday, all day, uh, 12 of us will be in meetings with this consultant, and we are just really praying that the Lord would make clear next steps for us as a church, that we would organize ourselves well to serve you well and to reach more people in our community and world. So we would ask you to pray for that. When we open up Romans chapter 14, Paul has instructions for the church on how to handle situations that are challenging where there is differing opinions on how to move forward on really important issues in the life of the church or in the life of the world. And he says in the very first verse of Romans 14 that even if you determine that your brother has made a decision that causes him to be what Paul calls the weaker brother, even in that situation, your posture towards that person should be one that welcomes and does not fight and quarrel over opinions. He is communicating to us that the law of love and the attitude of Christ should be prevailing in God's church when there's a difference of opinion. And right now, with all the things going on in our world, what you should do for your family, what we should do as a church, what we should do as a community or a nation or a world, there's differing opinions. And so we want to have a posture as a church where we are loving one another well and also loving our world well. So we want to communicate with you about how we are approaching that as a church, and we want to ask you uh, to seek the Lord and pray for us and also pray for wisdom and love for yourself. So um, the structure of the way we're going about things is this. We, for a number of weeks now, have had a COVID advisory team made up of medical and scientific professionals that are giving the elders recommendation based on what they know of science and even what's going on in our local community about uh, what is best and what is good as far as social distancing and people gathering together, large group gatherings, small group gatherings. And the elders are taking that information and then trying to make the most God-honoring and wisest choice for our entire church. Just this week, we are putting together what we are calling a relaunch team, uh, which is a team of folks that will lead us um, through the process of relaunching once that date is determined when we will be meeting back in person. Because what we want to do is we want to do that well. We, like you, are anxious to do it, but we feel a burden to do it well. We want to create an environment that is safe and also worshipful for the most people. And that's a tricky thing to do, and while we're able to meet, we want to make sure it's wise and safe and worshipful to meet. So we have the COVID advisory team instructing uh, what they know from their expertise, 
The elders are making wise decisions based on that, and then we have a relaunch team that is helping us think through what will it look like to open it up back in Have Live services. Um, that team is looking at how we go about it, but also when we go about it and coming back to the elders. Uh, by the end of this month, so in the next two weeks, we will have some guidelines out to all community group leaders uh, for uh, some guidelines of how to think through uh, reconvening meeting in person as community groups. There's special considerations there as well. And again, it's we're able to meet, but we need to go about it in a wise and safe and loving way. And so we're going to have some guidelines out for you in the next couple of weeks in those regards. So the question may remain for you, what can I do? Uh, there's two things that you can do. The first one is you will be receiving an email that is a very quick two-minute survey that will just get your opinions and your thoughts on how we can have a safe and worshipful environment for you and your family when we come back together and worship in person. The next thing is to pray. Please pray. Ask God for wisdom and love for you and your family, but also pray for wisdom for the elders and staff and the medical professionals in our church body that are um, deciding what is best for the whole church and really what is best for the community. So please pray for us in that way. Tonight's scripture reading is from Exodus chapter 1, verses 1 through 7. These are the names of the sons of Israel who came to Egypt with Jacob, each with his household. Reuben, Simeon, Levi, and Judah, Issachar, Zebulun, and Benjamin, Dan, and Naphtali, Gad, and Asher. All the descendants of Jacob were 70 persons. Joseph was already there in Egypt. Then Joseph died, and all his brothers, and all the generation. But the people of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly. They multiplied and grew exceedingly strong, so that the land was filled with them. This is the word of the Lord. Good evening, everyone. Pastor Steve here. I'm going to be bringing tonight's message. It's good to be here with you all uh, at service. Uh, for those of you who are not part of Grace Community Church downtown, would like to welcome you to service tonight. Glad you're joining in with us. And we hope that you are encouraged by the scriptures tonight. Um, and hope that you are also encouraged by God's grace and God's goodness tonight, as we'll talk about his grace for us. Tonight we're starting a new sermon series on the book of Exodus. Here at Grace Community Church, we usually preach through different books of the Bible, and this summer we're starting a series on Exodus. It's called Exodus uh, Delivered. It's the second book of the Bible, and usually when we go through a book of the Bible, we go pretty closely uh, through uh, verse by verse through the book of the Bible, but this one we're going to kind of divide up into larger chunks. So we'll be in this series about 13 weeks, uh, even though Exodus is about 40 chapters long. As we jump into this series, I'd like us to think about what it means to be delivered. We live in a world where there are clearly lots and lots of problems. We live in a world that is messed up. That's a very technical and theological term. The world is messed up. Uh, you don't even have to be religious to know that the world is messed up. Uh, I was recently watching uh, The Princess Bride. My wife and I were watching it with our seven-year-old. And uh, this classic line where uh, Wesley says, Life is pain. Anyone who says anything differently is selling something. Life is hard. 
Life is painful. I remember just about 10 years ago, I was at a conference here at the University of Iowa. There was a a professor who was an atheist. He came to speak. And his entire paper, he's an atheist. He does not believe that God exists. But his entire paper was about how we exist under conditions of damnation. That life is so hard. It's like we are all damned. Even without believing in God. The world is messed up. So what what does it mean to be delivered in the midst of this world where there's so much trouble? A lot of the times we are encouraged to think that deliverance is deliverance from circumstances. And there are times in life when we need to be delivered from circumstances. When oppression and injustice comes into the world, it is good and it is right for people to be delivered from oppression and injustice. And when sickness or major difficulties hit somebody in life, it's good when we can be delivered from those kinds of circumstances. So there's nothing wrong with seeking deliverance from those kinds of things. But in this, in this day and age, we're also very often encouraged to look for deliverance within ourselves. So when we face trouble in the world, we're often encouraged to turn inward. Look to yourself for answers or solutions. And it can show up in a lot of common phrases. Trust yourself. Believe in yourself. Be true to yourself. Like, know who you are. Figure out who you are. Go through this process in life of self-discovery. And then be true to who you are. You can't go wrong if you're just true to who you are. A really prominent one is do what feels right to you. Or even more prominent is the phrase you hear all over the place, follow your heart. Turn inward. Figure out what your heart is telling you to do. And stay true to your heart. Follow your heart. There are a lot of successful figures who will talk about this. Steve Jobs, who has built this, built this major empire with Apple. One of the things he commonly says was, follow your heart. Robin Williams said something very similar. Follow your heart. Rihanna says, follow your heart. And figure after figure talks about following your heart. But what if you cannot trust your heart? What if our hearts deceive us? What if our hearts are fickle? What if your heart leads you to do self-destructive things? Should we follow our heart then? What if your inclinations lead you to pursue something so rigorously, you pursue some kind of goal in life so steadfastly that you are willing to walk on top of other people and take advantage of other people to get it? Should we follow that inclination? What if your instincts have led you in your life to do things and you can tangibly look back and say, I followed my heart, I followed my instincts, and they led me down a wrong path. And I regret that. I regret what I've done because I followed my inclinations or my instincts. Today we're going to go through an overview of the book of Exodus. We're not going to just look at a few verses. I want to make sure that as we start this series, we all have an understanding of what the book is trying to do as a whole. And as we do that, what we'll find is that Exodus teaches us that we should be slow to trust ourselves. We should be slow to place confidence in ourselves, and we should be quick to put our trust in a gracious and a faithful God. At the beginning of the book of Exodus, the first half of this book, you see God has made a promise to this people, Israel, to be their God. He's made this covenant with them, a promise with them, to make them his chosen people, and he's going to bless them, and through them he's going to bless all the peoples of the world. 
And at the beginning of the book of Exodus, the first half of the book of Exodus, we see that there's a, a threat to this covenant and this promise. And that threat is that Israel is in bondage in Egypt. Will God's covenant come to pass? There's a major problem. It seems like it's threatened because God's people are in bondage in, in, in Egypt. But in the second half of the book, what we see is that God has led his people out of Egypt. He's led them out of bondage, out of slavery under Pharaoh. And yet the covenant is still threatened. It's in a precarious position. And it's because Israel is showing signs of being unfaithful to their faithful God. At the, at the end of the book, we see that we should not be quick to trust ourselves, but we should actually be quick to trust this faithful God and this gracious God. So let's jump in together tonight. As we start, there's an introduction to the verses that Jason just read for us, Exodus 1, verses 1 through 7. It talks about the names of the sons of Israel who came to Egypt with Jacob. So backstory. Exodus is the second book of the Bible, but it comes on the heels of Genesis. And Genesis has already told us a lot. Uh, humans were created in God's image to do good things. We fell. We've brought chaos and all kinds of trouble into the world. And in the midst of this troubled world... God makes a covenant with a man named Abraham to make him into a great nation. And through that nation, he's going to bring blessings, not only to that nation, but to all the families of the earth. And so we see that God has turned Abraham's descendants into a people, and they're in Egypt. These are the names of the sons of Israel who came to Egypt with Jacob. Jacob was one of the descendants of Abraham, and you've got these descendants in Egypt. So then these verses name the different sons of Israel who are in Egypt. But if you look at verse 7, I want to really focus there. It says, The people of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly. They multiplied and grew exceedingly strong so that the land was filled with them. The author of Exodus in verse 7 is using some loaded language, and he wants us to link this with another verse in the Bible, which is Genesis, in Genesis 1. In Genesis 1, the very opening verses of the Bible, that first chapter we see God creating the world, but in verses 27 and 28 of Genesis 1, God says this, God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. God uses the same language of being fruitful, multiplying and filling in Genesis 1. The author leans on this language in Exodus, Exodus 1 as well. There's a link here. What the author is trying to say is in Genesis 1, when God created image bearers, male and female, to bear God's image, humans were created to be God's representatives on earth. And as God's representatives, they would be his conduit of blessing into the world, bring his, his goodness into the world. Just as God had created the world and brought goodness into the world and filled the world with good things, now God creates man and woman in his image to represent him and look like him in the way that they continue to fill the world with good things. But then just two chapters later in Genesis, Genesis 3, it all goes to pot. It all goes to pot. The first man, the first woman do not obey God. They don't trust his instructions. They don't trust his word. They turn from his word and follow their own path. And when they do that, they stop representing him. And they also become conduits for curses, for chaos, and for conflict to come into the world. 
So what Exodus 1-7 is telling us, it's front-loading this here in these first seven verses, is trying to say in this world that's been filled with humans who have stopped reflecting the nature of God in the way that we live, we've stopped representing God, we've become conduits for conflict and chaos and curses to come into the world, God is going to raise up this covenant people who will once again represent their God in the world and who will be a conduit for blessing into the world. They'll receive his blessings, but also become a conduit for extending God's blessing into the world. This is powerful. Exodus 1 through 7, Exodus 1 verses 1 through 7, is really front-loading and saying a lot right up front. But there's a problem. Go to the next verse and we see that there's a problem. There's a major obstacle for Israel to be able to carry out what God has in mind for them. They're in slavery in Egypt. And so now the first half of the book, uh, chapters 1 through 18, are going to walk us through God delivering Israel from slavery in Egypt. Israel's not in a great position to be a blessing to all the nations of the earth because they're in bondage themselves. They're in slavery themselves. So the first 18 chapters of Exodus is a picture of God delivering Israel from slavery in Egypt. And it's really a contest It's a contest between Pharaoh and Pharaoh's gods in Egypt and the God of Israel. This is a powerful, powerful display of of battle between Yahweh, the God of Israel, and Egypt's Pharaoh and Egypt's gods. It's so vivid. If you've never read it before, I encourage you to go read it. It's a real page-turner. So, uh, the author does this really masterful job of laying out some rich, rich ironies here, as you've got the God of Israel doing battle with uh, Pharaoh and Pharaoh's gods. There are so many ironies here. Pharaoh is this powerful and wealthy king of a nation. He oversees this whole nation. In some ways, he's even considered somewhat divine himself. This massive figure with power. Israel, on the other hand, is not yet formally a nation. There are people, they have many, many, many people, but they're not a nation yet. And they're slaves. They're enslaved. They have very little power. Yet repeatedly, it's the cod of this powerless people, of these slaves, these relatively low people, who dominates Pharaoh and Pharaoh's gods. This is an amazing kind of set of ironies here. The god of slaves goes to battle against the gods of this wealthy, powerful king, and it's the god of slaves that continually proves himself to be more powerful. Now, there's a prelude to the contest. The actual contest is these ten plagues. If you've seen the Ten Commandments with Charlton Heston, you know these plagues. If you've read the account, you know these plagues. They're very, very well known uh, in the scriptures, and even people who aren't Christian are very familiar oftentimes with these uh, plagues. But even before we get to the plagues, there's a prelude to that major contest. That's like the main event. But there's a prelude to it that comes even early on. It's a contest between Pharaoh and some midwives, Hebrew midwives. So Pharaoh says, look, I've got all of these growing number of Israelites in my kingdom. And Pharaoh says, they're a threat. This growing number of Israelites is a threat. What if they align with one of my foes, one of my enemies, and war breaks out? We'll be wiped out. There are just too many of these Israelites. And so Pharaoh puts them into bondage, puts them into slavery to kind of control them, to reduce them being a threat to his power and to his kingdom, and then also to use them as free labor to build his great cities. And then he even still sees them as a threat. They're still growing in number, and he says, they're still a threat. 
got to do something about this growing number of Israelites in my kingdom. And so he makes this decree in chapter 1. And he says uh, that the, the Hebrew midwives, as they go to mothers who are in delivery and bearing children, he says, if a child is born and it's a, it's a female, you let it live. But if a child is born and it's a male, you should kill it. You should throw that baby into the Nile. He's trying to reduce this number of Israelites so that his power is not threatened. And yet these lowly Hebrew midwives, these Jewish midwives, they fear God more than they fear Pharaoh. And what do they do? They say, We're not going to kill these, these boys. We're not going to kill these young boys. And so in their respect of God, their fear of God, they choose to disobey Pharaoh. And they come up with a plan, this sneaky plan. Pharaoh says, uh, what's going on? And the midwives say, well, these Hebrew mothers are so vigorous when they give birth that you know, we try to go and get there, but by the time we get there, they've already given birth. It's, we, there's nothing we can do about it. We get there way too late. And so what's interesting is that in this contest, this Pharaoh, this king with all this power is outwitted. He's made a scheme to get rid of the Israelites, and yet these lowly midwives outwit him. It's an amazing irony. These lowly midwives, these slaves, outwit him. And they're named in the book of Exodus. These midwives are named. But the, the Pharaoh, he's never named. It's a way of saying God recognizes the status of these women and also says something about how God is on their side. And yet this unnamed Pharaoh, who has all this earthly power, is being outwitted by these slaves who fear God. But then that sets us up for the main contest. The main contest is that uh, God raises up this deliverer, Moses. Moses is one of the children of Israel. Uh, he ends up, uh, through an interesting turn of events, growing up in the household of Pharaoh, but then leaves Egypt. Um, and then while he's away from Egypt, God powerfully calls him and says, Moses, you're going to be my conduit and the one who's going to lead my people out of slavery. And so Moses returns to Egypt, and he is going to go directly to Pharaoh and say, Pharaoh, you need to let my people go. Let God's people go. And Pharaoh, every time that Moses comes to him, Pharaoh refuses. So this contest shows up where uh, Moses is tasked by God to say, Pharaoh, if you do not let God's people go, a plague is coming. A plague is coming to break your will, to show you that God is the true God, and to cause you to let his people go. And so Pharaoh resists. He, re he is hard-hearted and does not change his mind. And so the pl uh, first plague comes. And each of these plagues that come, they're not just uh, God unleashing some kind of pestilence on the land. Each of these plagues is aimed and directed at confronting a particular god of Egypt. So the first plague, Moses turns the Nile into blood so that it's undrinkable and people can't draw water from it. That is a direct uh, attack and challenge to the god of the Nile. Each of these plagues tends to line up with the God of Egypt. And so the God of Israel is doing battle with these specific gods. When the sun is blotted out and everything goes dark, that's an attack against the God of the sun in Egypt. In each of these cases, God shows himself more powerful. The God of slaves shows himself more powerful than Pharaoh and Pharaoh's gods. And finally, there's a tenth plague. There's a tenth plague. Each of these plagues, Pharaoh begins to relent. He's like, okay, okay, uh, you can do what you need to do. You, you all can go. But as soon as the plague is lifted, he hardens his heart. Or the text says that God hardens Pharaoh's heart. So that Pharaoh again resists and says, no, actually, I'm not going to let the people go. 
And finally, after nine plagues, the tenth final plague comes. And through Moses, God tells Pharaoh, if you don't let my chosen people go, the firstborn of your land will perish. A destroyer will come, and the firstborn of your land will perish. Pharaoh again resists. And on this, this fateful and very famous night, Passover, the destroyer comes in, and God has told Israel's, uh, the people of Israel, look, you are to take a lamb on this night and kill that lamb and paint the blood of that lamb on your doorposts so that when the destroyer comes in, your firstborn will be protected and spared. And so the, the children of Israel are protected by this Passover lamb that is sacrificed and the blood that's painted on their doorposts. But in Egypt, the firstborn are taken. And there's this great lament, this great cry that breaks out in Egypt. And finally, Pharaoh says, take your people and go. Take your people and go. God has finally broken Pharaoh so that Pharaoh's will is broken. Now, what's interesting here is that God not only does battle with these gods of Egypt, God is even doing battle with Pharaoh. And as Pharaoh hardens his heart, it shows us his hard will and his stubbornness, but God also hardens Pharaoh's heart. And the way one Old Testament scholar has put it is, what is God doing when, when he hardens Pharaoh's heart? And showing that God is even more powerful than Pharaoh. Have you ever heard of the game Cat and Mouse, where a cat bats around a mouse and toys with the mouse and even is really rough with the mouse and then he's only just having fun with the mouse it's kind of like that god is kind of toying with pharaoh saying yes you're hard-hearted and stubborn but even your heart the heart of this major powerful king is in the control of the god of slaves and so finally pharaoh's will is broken he says take your people and go israel leaves they're, they're rejoicing, they're wandering out, uh, out away from, from Egypt. Everyone's celebrating. And after they leave, Pharaoh says, what have I done? He changes his mind. The text says two interesting things. The text says Pharaoh changes his mind and that God again hardens Pharaoh's heart. And Pharaoh flees out after the Israelites, goes to overtake them, to get them back. It's like, we need these people in bondage again. <clears throat> How could we have let them go? The people of Israel are encamped right in front of the Red Sea, and then they see that Pharaoh's army is coming. And they are deeply afraid. They're caught between the Red Sea and Pharaoh's encroaching army, and they're in despair. What are we going to do? And finally, God uses Moses and does another miracle. He separates the Red Sea, and Israel is able to go through on the dry land. And after Israel goes through, then the, the sea comes back together. And Pharaoh, who's pursuing them in his rage and in his desire to take them back, the sea closes up around him, and Pharaoh and his army is no more. God, in these first 18 chapters, it's this vivid portrayal of him going to battle against Pharaoh and Pharaoh's gods, and God proves more powerful, and in that he's redeemed and delivered his people from slavery in Egypt. So Israel, chapter 15, they break out in worship, and they praise their God who's delivered them from slavery to Egypt. So this is the first half of the book. Then we get to the second half of the book, chapters 19 through 40. Chapters 19 through 40. What we see here is that Israel was delivered from slavery in the first half of the book, but now in the second half of the book, they are delivered for a purpose. God has delivered them for a purpose. We see this in Exodus 19, verses 4 through 6. Israel is at Mount Sinai, where God is giving them his law. And this is what he says to them. 
he says to, to Moses, tell this to the people. You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Remember, I brought you out of slavery to Egypt. I conquered Pharaoh. I showed myself more powerful than all the gods of Egypt, and I delivered you to myself. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, keep my law, you shall be my treasured possession among all the peoples, for all the earth is mine. And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. You shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. That's a really profound statement. We might read over that quickly and miss what's being said here. What does it mean to be a priest? To be a priest is to be like a mediator between God and others. In some ways, it's to be a representative of God to others. And what... What is being said here, God's saying, Israel, the whole nation, not just one or two people. It's not a kingdom with priests. It's a kingdom of priests. The whole nation will be like priests. To who? To the rest of the world. To the rest of the world. God has delivered his people from Egypt and delivered them from slavery so that they can now be God's representatives on earth to other peoples of the earth, what God is like. They can show the world what God is like. And God is going to turn them into his channel and his conduit for blessing the peoples of the world. So Israel would be blessed as they enjoy God's covenant, as they enjoy his promises. But now Israel is also going to be a conduit for blessing all the peoples of the world as they are this kingdom of priests in the world and to the world. And what's the means for getting this done? So God has delivered them from slavery. They're no longer under the thumb of Pharaoh and Pharaoh's gods. And now God says, I'm going to give you my instruction, my law, for what it looks like to receive my blessing and then also to represent me to the world. I'm going to give you my law. The law breaks down into two sections. How to worship God. It's very, very complex. All kinds of laws. We'll get into those in later sermons. But in short, the law talks about how we should worship God. How we worship him first and foremost and solely he's the only one to be worshipped how we love him supremely and as we love him and worship him supremely Israel was promised that God's presence would abide with them he would dwell with them he would live with them and as his presence is there he brings his covenant blessing to the people but the second part of the law is that they should treat one another well They should treat one another well. They should respect one another. They should not take advantage of one another. Treat one another fairly. So the law is how to worship God and enjoy his presence and enjoy his covenant blessings. But the law is also about how they should practice justice with one another. Treat one another well. Treat one another rightly. And as they do that, they would be blessed, but they would also become representatives to the world of what God is like, show the world what God and God's kingdom is like, and then they would also be a conduit for blessing all the nations of the world. So doesn't this sound so good? In the history of humanity, where the Bible so far shown as pictures of people who do not represent God, and as they go their own way, don't follow his instruction, but follow their own inclinations, and they bring chaos They bring curses. They bring conflict into the world. All this trouble, including Pharaoh. He's not representing God. He's brought all kinds of conflict into the world. All kinds of injustice into the world. This is 
good news that God has raised up a chosen people and he's thrown off the yoke of slavery and he gives them his law and he's like, now you will be my kingdom of priests to the world. This covenant blessing is going to be given to you and it's going to overflow to other people. Doesn't this sound like great, great news? It is good news. But there's trouble brewing. There is trouble brewing in Exodus. This sounds like great news, but there's still trouble. There's still a problem. There's still more deliverance that needs to happen. What's the trouble? It's Israel. The trouble is Israel. Israel shows signs of being unfaithful to their very faithful God. Look at Exodus 16. There's smatterings of this throughout. Exodus 16 is a big one, and Exodus 32 is a very big moment of this unfaithfulness. So in Exodus 16, the context here is in Exodus 15, just a chapter before, God has just delivered Israel through the Red Sea. He's just destroyed Pharaoh and Pharaoh's armies. And now Israel has praised God, thanking him for their deliverance. And then in verse or chapter 16, the very next chapter, after they've been delivered from the Red Sea, it says the whole congregation of the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness. And the people of Israel said to them, Would that we had died by the hand of the Lord in the land of Egypt, when we sat by the meat pots and ate bread to the full. For you have brought us out into this wilderness to kill this whole assembly with hunger. To kill this whole assembly with hunger. They're grumbling. It's like traveling with kids in some ways. <laughs> you stop at a gas station or you stop at a place, this is the time to eat, we're going to get food, I'm not hungry. And you get in the car and you leave and about 15 minutes later, I'm hungry, can I eat something? <laughs> Israel has just been offered God's goodness and he's shown them his power and yet they question him. They show themselves to be ungrateful and they don't trust that God will provide for them. An even more stark example is in Exodus 32. Moses is on the mountain as God is giving Israel the law. And this is a conduit for God's blessing to the people. Here's the law, how you can enjoy my presence. I'm going to live with you. Here's the law, how you can be a blessing to one another as you treat one another well. Here's the law so that you can be a blessing to all the nations of the world. God is giving all of these stipulations for how they could receive blessing and be a blessing. And yet Israel's at the foot of the mountain and they go to Aaron and they say, would you make us a golden calf that we can worship? Are you serious? In the midst of all of this great redemption, Israel is fashioning a calf to worship instead of worshiping the true God of Israel. That has just delivered them. In Exodus, we see that we should not trust ourselves. In Israel's struggle to be faithful to their faithful God, we see the fickleness of our own hearts. Exodus wants to show us not only that God is more powerful than all the gods of the earth, all these lesser gods which are no gods. God is greater. He wants to show us that he's more powerful than ungodly kings. He wants to show us that he, can, he is wanting to deliver people from oppression and injustice. But then in the back of the book of Exodus, what we see is that God has to deliver us from ourselves. That we ourselves continue to be a problem in this world. It's not enough for God to deliver Israel from oppression in Egypt and to deliver them from Pharaoh. It's not even enough for Israel to be given the law. It's not enough for them to be given the law. They can't keep the law. The law is good. The law is perfect, but they can't keep it. And because of that, they are now threatening the covenant, whether they will receive God's blessing or whether they'll extend it to others in the world. And this is where we find ourselves. We and our frailty. It shows us our human frailty, our inclination to, towards wickedness, to have hearts that go astray. We need God. We need his redemption. And we need his work in our lives. So where is the hope in Exodus? Where is there hope in Exodus? 
Hope, first of all, is found in the fact that God continues to be patient with the people of Israel, even amidst their grumbling. Hope is found in the book of Exodus as God continues the covenant with Israel, even when Israel is unfaithful. There are times when God has to come onto the scene and has to correct Israel. He has to come onto the scene and chastise Israel, but he never stops his covenant. His covenant continues. God shows himself to be patient and forgiving and merciful to people who struggle to trust him. But I think the greatest thing that, the greatest hope we find in Exodus is in what it foreshadows. What Exodus foreshadows. Exodus foreshadows the time that Jesus would come. When Israel struggles to fulfill the law, doesn't keep the law, Jesus would come and would completely keep the law. Jesus would come and completely reflect the nature of our Heavenly Father. In this world of sin, he comes and shows us goodness and completely keeps the law. Secondly, Exodus foreshadows a time that a final and perfect sacrifice would come. Exodus, with its Passover lambs that are sacrificed to protect Israel, foreshadows a time that Jesus would come. And John 1 talks about this, that Jesus is the Lamb of God, the Passover lamb who takes away the sin of the world. When all of the, the Bible reveals the sinfulness of our hearts, the waywardness of our hearts, all of our inclinations towards injustice and unfairness and the ways we bring trouble to ourselves and we bring trouble to others and we don't honor God and we disobey God, God makes good on the Passover when he finally sends Jesus, the perfect Passover lamb, to take away our sin. To deal with the problems in our hearts. And then finally, Exodus foreshadows the giving of the Spirit. The time that Jesus would would come and then send his Spirit so that the Spirit of God doesn't just dwell in a tabernacle or in a temple, but the Spirit of God comes to dwell in our hearts and to change our hearts. What we find in Exodus is that Pharaoh, with his hard heart, and the heart that God hardens, is not the only one with a heart problem. Israel, too, has a heart problem. They have fickle hearts. They don't trust God. And here we find ourselves in the pages of Exodus. Our own fickle hearts. Our own hearts that are not trustworthy, that lead us into destruction, and cause us to even hurt other people. And yet in Exodus, we see hope. As God not only delivers Egypt or Israel from slavery in Egypt, but God is now promising deliverance from our own sin from our own wicked and wayward hearts. He provides sacrifice on the cross for our sins so that we can be washed and forgiven of our sins. And then he promised to send his spirit who will change our hearts so that we begin to love God, love his good, good commands, and live them out so that he is glorified, his name is known, he is represented in the world, and he makes us a conduit of blessing to others. Lord, we just want to thank you today. For the book of Exodus, we want to thank you, Lord God, that you are God who sees the pain and trouble and affliction and oppression in the world, Lord God. And you, Lord, act in response to that. You are a God who is not okay with oppression. And Lord, you have something to say about that. But Lord, we also thank you that in the midst of this world, as we long to maybe fight against things like oppression, And we want to do good. But even in our efforts to want to do good, our our hearts can lead us astray. Sometimes our hearts don't even want to do good as we come to grips with the waywardness of our own hearts. And we see that even in Exodus, Lord God. We thank you that you are a deliverer who's come not just to deliver us from trouble in the world and circumstances. We thank you for that, but you've also come to deliver us from the waywardness of our own hearts. 
We thank you for Jesus, the Passover lamb, who takes away the sin of the world. And today, if we have sin that we need to confess to you, we can be forgiven of that sin because of what Jesus has done. We also thank you, Lord God, for the spirit that you have sent into the world, that you not only have sent Jesus to be a Passover lamb to wash us of our sin, but you have also, Lord God, sent your spirit to change our hearts. So we pray that you would help us today to take joy in your forgiveness for us, Help us to see our sin, the waywardness of our hearts. Help us to confess that, but to take joy in your gracious forgiveness for us. And then, Lord God, we also pray that your spirit would be alive and active in us, and maybe we be attentive to the work of your spirit so that you would change our hearts and help us to be a people who represent you in the world, who bring you glory and become a conduit to bless other people so that they would see your goodness and see your glory and find hope in you. We pray it all in Jesus' name and give you glory today. Amen. Thanks for being together here at church. I encourage you to come back next week. We'll jump into Exodus and we'll continue on in our series together. Have a great week.